to the preaching and teaching ministry of Marion Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Tonight we're going to begin this new Bible study series called Answering Tough Questions. There's a number of reasons for why we want to answer these tough questions. Um, One of the main reasons for me is the fact that the enemy can use these type of tough questions to undermine our faith, to cause us to doubt God, to bring confusion to our mind, and we don't want that. Another reason is that for at least some of the questions we're going to be dealing with, these are issues that keep people from wanting to consider a relationship with God or believing that the Bible is God's word or that Jesus really is the Son of God or, or whatever it might be. It's the type of thing that can keep people from faith. Now, those kind of people probably won't come to the Bible study, although you are welcome to invite them, especially if we deal with a question that you know somebody's wrestling with. But it'll help prepare us and equip us to be able to answer their questions or at least point them in the right direction. And so that's another reason. For another one, it's just to satisfy curiosity. And it's good to have curiosity about God's word. It's good to have questions like, well, why does the Bible say that? Why does it, you know, because it helps us to dig in. And there's probably other good reasons for us to do it. But um, that's why we're going to do this series um, over the next couple of months through the summer, probably into the fall. And as I mentioned before, <clears throat> I've got a whole list of questions. But if you've got one in particular, you can feel free to share that with me and we'll try to work it into the series. But tonight, the question is, can we trust the Bible? And this is a really good one to start with because these tough questions we're dealing with have to do with the Bible and or our relationship with God and his interaction in the world. So we need to have that confidence that the Bible really is God's word and it has authority or whatever answers we come up with might be like, well, that may be true, it may not because can we trust the Bible? So um, I've taught this before in many different settings and such. Um, and I divided it in half because there's always so much information. Um, so next week we're going to follow up this topic of can we trust the Bible with are there errors in the Bible? And this is a big deal for people that are out there that do not want to, or maybe it's not because they just don't want to, but they don't believe in the Bible because they think there's errors in there. That's one of the first things you'll hear people say, well, you can't believe what the Bible says. There's so many errors. and I mean, it's from, from manuscripts. They're from 2000. They've been copied over and over, and there's contradictions in the Bible, and the Bible doesn't agree with science, and the Bible doesn't agree with history, and the Bible doesn't agree with archaeology. All kinds of problems, errors, contradictions, and we're going to deal with that next week. We'll refer to them some tonight, but we'll deal with the details next week. So tonight... Can we trust the Bible? First of all, why should we care? What difference does it make whether we can trust the Bible or not? What difference is there between the Bible and any other book? What would you say? Inerrancy. Inerrancy is the topic. Yes, we believe it is without error. And again, we'll talk about that more next week too and tonight. But why is that an issue? Why does it matter whether the Bible is inerrant? Because it's the foundation for our faith. So if it has errors, if it really isn't God's word, what does that mean for our faith? It's groundless. It's groundless. Yeah. Uh, at best, we don't know whether we can really count on it or not. At worst, it's worthless. Right? Chris, what were you going to say? That's right. Uh, that is true about God's truth. But I think the passage you're talking about is specifically about the resurrection. 
if the resurrection is not real, if Jesus really didn't raise from the dead, uh, I think the way Paul put it is we're of all men the most to be pitied, you know, because our faith is groundless. You know, um, if Jesus hasn't been raised, then we're not going to get raised, and, and everything we believe is based on a lie. And so uh, the same thing is true for our other beliefs, too. It's either God's word or it isn't. And if it's not, why are we wasting all this time sitting here in Bible study just learning about fairy tales, you know, or something that may or not may not be true? So it's significantly important. Um, two things to lay the foundation for our study tonight is that the first bullet point on your note sheet, the Bible claims to be God's word. Because there are some people who say, well, you know, the Bible is just a collection of books. And, 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 and it is a collection of books, 66 books. But it doesn't ever really claim to be God's word, but that's... An ignorant, that's not meant to be a, a, a negative pejorative statement. It's an ignorant statement in the sense that if somebody really believes that, they don't know what the Bible says because the Bible does claim to be God's word. The two primary passages, I'm going to read one now and then another one with the second point. But the first one is Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. It says, no prophecy of Scripture. And let me define that. We often think of prophecy as somebody's telling the future. That's not what this is talking about here. Prophecy literally is when someone is speaking for God, okay? Um, a prophet was someone who spoke for God. Sometimes it evolved speaking about the future, but many times it didn't. It means I'm bringing God's word to this situation right now because he's told me to. So basically what it's saying is no time that somebody spoke on behalf of God, which would include scripture. No prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, For no prophecy, nobody speaking for God, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God did use men to bring his word, and they did it in their own language, in their own style. I mean, if you study the different books of the Bible in the original languages, there's different styles, just like if you had somebody today that was writing a book or whatever, and you compare, they, they do it with different styles. He did it in their style. He did it through them. But in doing so, he did it in such a way that it was what, exactly what God wanted said. And that's why I think this picture is so good, as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, if you're in a canoe or a kayak or a rowboat and you're on a river, that river's taking you someplace, but you kind of are in control a little bit too, all right? And that's kind of the picture there, that God is the motivating, moving, guiding force behind his word, but he uses people in their efforts as he guides and leads and speaks through them. Okay. The second bullet point on your note sheet there is the Bible claims to have authority for our beliefs and behavior, our actions. Uh, another way you can put it is our character and our conduct. In other words, what we believe in our heads, in our hearts, and how that affects our life. The Bible says this, it is God's word, then it has the authority to basically tell us what to believe and how to behave. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. And again, that's another great picture, all right? That God is the one that breathed it out through human beings, but it's God himself all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man or woman, we can put in there, of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible talks a lot about how we need to grow and mature and develop, and that involves knowing 
um, things and learning things and applying things. Um, Peter tells us that we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And God says, you're going to get that. That's going to happen through my word. And there's a positive side and a negative side. You go in the wrong way. It'll say you're going the wrong way. <laughs> get back on the right path. It'll show you what the right path is. And if you're thinking the wrong thing, it'll say you're thinking the wrong things. And here's what you should be thinking. Here's what you should be believing. You see that in the phrases that are used. Teaching, reproof. Teaching is positive. Reproof is negative. Correction is negative. Training and righteousness is positive. So you've got all of those things that are there. All right? So these claims are important because if this Bible that we have is not God's word, we're wasting our time. But if it is God's word, there's nothing else that compares in importance. Okay, So the purpose of our lesson tonight is to give us some solid support for our belief that the Bible is the word of God and can be trusted. To give us confidence, um, to help us to be able to give a defense for our faith, and also to give us information that we can use as an opportunity to witness to others, especially as they would possibly um, have questions. All right. So, basically we're going to talk tonight about reasons we believe the Bible is the word of God and can be trusted. And these are not the only reasons. And I would just say this about not only this topic, but every topic and question we're going to deal with. If you were to take that and type it into Google or whatever search engine you use on the Internet, you're going to get all kinds of articles and resources where you can do additional um, research and everything. Of course, um, I know this takes you by surprise, but not everything on the Internet is true. Okay, So you have to weed through some stuff. Um, I'm going to refer to an article I came across this last week when I was studying for next week. Um, Is the Bible full of errors? I typed that in and brought it up, and there's one particular article, and it says, of course it is. And then the whole article talked about how you can't trust it because it's full, but it didn't give one single example of an error. I thought, that's kind of disingenuous, you know. So anyway, reasons we believe the Bible is the word of God and can be trusted. Number one is internal consistency. Internal consistency. What does it mean to be consistent? The same. The same. Yeah. So here's some facts you may know or may not know, or maybe you don't know the full breadth of it. But there are 66 books in the Bible, okay? And they were written by 40 different, around 40 different authors, because some wrote more than one book. Paul was really prolific. He wrote, I think it's 13 letters, okay? And Moses wrote five. So 66 books by 40 different authors, written over a period of about 1,600 years, okay? Three different languages, several different continents, all right? But yet when you put it all together, there's an internal consistency and unity to what is talked about and how it's like a puzzle that all fits together, all right? Well, some of the authors, what were their occupations? Fisherman, yeah. Peter was a fisherman. So was John. Herdsman. Herdsman. Amos was a herdsman, but he was also a, 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 a what do they call it, a, a, a work with fig trees, a pruner of fig trees. Yeah, All right? Collectors. Tax collectors. Matthew was a tax collector. How about Daniel? Statesman. He was a statesman, yeah, and, and uh, prime minister too. What about Luke? He was a doctor, yeah. Solomon was a king. Paul was a Jewish rabbi. He was also a philosopher. He was a very smart man. Shepherds, yeah, David was a shepherd. 
Okay, Moses was a political leader. I mean, they all had different kind of backgrounds, different kind of um, uh, perspectives, and again, over a period of time. And they're talking about, they're writing about what could be very controversial subjects. Theology, ethics, you know, what's right, what's wrong, philosophy, how everything began, how everything's going to end, what's wrong with this world and the people in it, what can fix it, what did fix it, what will fix it, all right? But yet there's a continuous unified story all the way through. I mean, forget the whole idea of 40 people over 1,600 years. Just take any 10 people today in one culture and ask them what they think about all these topics and how many different opinions you're going to get. With 10 people, probably at least 15. Because some people just don't know for sure, right? I mean, you're not going to find unity. You can, you can go to the library and check out 10 books on the same subject, whatever the subject's going to be, and you're not going to find as much unity as there is in the Bible. All right? Now, objections are raised. Okay, you say there's unity in the Bible, and yeah, that may be true basically, but still there's a bunch of contradictions in there, and that's where we're going to dig into it deeper next week. Okay? And I would really encourage you to maybe... Think about that and say, what are some of the contradictions that people have told you about, or maybe you've noticed, supposed contradictions anyway, and bring those with you next week. But some people say, well, there are contradictions in there. You talk about unity in general, but there's still a whole bunch of stuff that don't, doesn't line up, and we'll talk about that next week. But in general, and I would say even in the specifics, there is internal consistency. And that can only be the case, I think, because of the fact that God is the ultimate author behind everything that we find in God's word. The second thing is fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. Why would fulfilled prophecy be a big deal uh, as a foundation stone for trusting the Bible? Because why? It's historical. It's historical. What? You can see it. Okay, so it's proof, if I could get to the back of what you said, it's proof that there's something supernatural behind this. It's not just people putting stuff out there. Okay? Yeah. You... That's right, that's right. Can people by themselves predict the future? I saw I'll come back to you, Lisa. No, I mean, there's some people that claim to be able to, and you got psychics, and you got this, that, and the other, and sometimes they get it right, and there may be a number of reasons why, lucky guesses, could be spiritual forces at work, whatever. But to the degree that we see fulfilled prophecy in Scripture, it goes so far way beyond. I mean, like way, way, way beyond anything that any human being could possibly claim or even seem to demonstrate. Lisa, you had your hand up. What were you going to say? Even in the present, you still see prophecy Yeah, it's not all fulfilled yet because some of the prophecy in the Bible, we're still waiting for it to be fulfilled. Yeah. Okay. Um, People cannot truly predict the future, especially to the degree and with the detail that God's word does. Um, Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10. God says, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Okay? In fact, God mentions, especially in Isaiah, over and over and over again, I know the future. He says, you guys want to serve these other gods? None of them can tell the future. I can do it. I'm the only one who can. Okay? Um, I've got to fill in the blank in the next one. Don't put it up yet unless you already have. You haven't. Okay. So don't put it up. About how much of the Bible do you think was unfulfilled prophecy when it was written? I know it may be a guess, but how much would you guess? Unfulfilled 
In other words, when it was pro- when it was given, it was a prophecy and it hadn't come true yet. How much of the Bible do you think, when it was written down, when it was or spoken and then later it was written down, was unfulfilled prophecy? Because you got a lot of stories, that's not prophecy. You got poetry, that's not prophecy. But how much of the Bible, take a guess, do you think was unfulfilled prophecy when it was written down? Anybody want to take a stab at it? One third? What? Most of it? Okay. Half of it? You'll go with one third? 30%? Oh, one third, 33 to thirds is not good. It's got to be exactly 30. Okay. Well, I did not sit down and count it up myself, but I, in my research, I came across several places where it said about one quarter of the Bible was unfulfilled prophecy when it was written. Those are just miscellaneous prophecies. Okay. Uh, I'll just throw some out there. And this is really fascinating if you want to study it. There was a town called Tyre. Um, T-Y-R-E, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Very powerful civilization, very prideful. And I, for, I should have written it down, I should have looked it up, but I think it was Ezekiel, but if not, it was one of the other prophets. God said, your judgment's coming. And he prophesied how the judgment was going to come and the fact that it would be unoccupied for a certain period of time and that fish, it was like an, on an island off the coast and they built a causeway out of it and that it would just be used for fishermen to spread their nets. Way long after the prophecy, Alexander the Great conquered it. He put it under siege. He conquered it, and for a long time, it was only a place for fishermen to put their nets. Okay. Um, another good example was the invasion in the fall of Babylon. You can read about that in Daniel. God prophesied exactly how it was going to happen and when it would happen. Isaiah prophesied the name of Cyrus 160 years before he was born, that Cyrus was going to be the ruler of Babylon and that God's people would be taken there into captivity, and that Cyrus would let them free, that he'd let them go back home. 160 years before. Uh, Daniel's got a lot of prophecy in it. He had dreams and visions, and he interpreted um, dreams of the Babylonian king that talked about the different empires that were going to rise. You know, he's in the Babylonian, and after them came the Persians, and after them came the Greeks, and after that was the Romans. And all those visions and stuff God gave to the king first and then to Daniel prophesied those different empires that were going to come. Uh, when Israel was taken into captivity, it was prophesied that they would return many times. And they did. And Daniel also has a prophecy of the 70 weeks. And it gets into a lot of details and all that's come true. Now, that's just a little smorgasbord of a couple of things from the Old Testament. Huh? Yeah, I'll get to Jesus next. But that's good. Yeah, Jesus is a big deal. But apart from Jesus, just the miscellaneous prophecies. Were you going to say something, Carlton? The, the intriguing thing is that Cyrus not only he put in the bill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right. He did. He did. So you got these miscellaneous prophecies, but then you have prophecies concerning Jesus Christ. Now, don't put it up there yet, Chris. Anybody want to take a guess on how many prophecies, specific prophecies there are that were fulfilled or will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ from the Old Testament? A thousand? What'd you say? Like 130. 130? 700. 700? Okay, so let's take John's a thousand, subtract the 700, the number's about 300. So between the two of you, you got the math just about right, okay? It's about 300 prophecies concerning Christ. Now, people see that and they say, well, you know what? Jesus just kind of 
lived his life and him and his followers kind of set things up so that he fulfilled these prophecies so that he would be declared the Jewish Messiah, but he failed because they killed him for it and all that kind of stuff. And there is a certain degree to which a person could try to fulfill certain things by deliberately manipulating situations and what they choose to do or not do or whatever. However, there are so many prophecies about Jesus that he had absolutely no control over. A mathematician, a statistician, same type person, uh, sat down one time and took just eight prophecies of these 300 that Jesus had no control over, okay? Because Jesus' place of birth, time of birth, his betrayal, the way he died, the people mocking him when he's on the cross, the fact that his body was pierced and that he'd be buried in a borrowed tomb. All things he could not control. Eight prophecies. And the statistician said that the chances of that happening by chance, is 1 in 10 with 17 zeros after it. Okay? And so somebody decided, how do we understand that? And I don't know how they came up with this. And I don't know if it's totally accurate, but if it's even close. They said it'd be sort of like taking silver dollars and stacking them two feet deep over the whole state of Texas. And you mark one of them with a red dot, and you mix it in, and then you blindfold somebody and say, go pick it up on your first try. Now, is that real accurate? I don't, the statistician came up with it, but even if it's only half accurate, <laughs> how likely is that to happen? Not very likely at all, okay? And so fulfilled prophecy is something that can give us tremendous confidence and that God's word is God's word. The Bible is God's word, okay? The third one is manuscript reliability. Manuscript reliability. Now, people don't often think about this, but how do we know that what we know about history is true? How do we even know what we know about history? The great people of history, the great events of history, things about the Roman Empire, the Greece, the, what we just talked about that's prophesied in the Bible, Roman Empire, Grecian Empire, the history of Britain, the history of the United States. How do we know what we know about history? Okay, things based on archaeology. But if you dig up an artifact, does that tell you somebody's name? If it's inscribed, yeah. But does it tell you who they were and what they did? I mean, how do we know the facts? Okay, so somebody was there, but how do we get the information from them? Because they don't live now. They wrote it down. Or oral tradition, you know, before a lot of writing and printing for sure, things were passed down with oral tradition. Eventually they were written down, right? Okay, and then that was passed down. But you know, things that happened hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of years ago, it was written down. And what happened to the thing that it was written down on? It could have been destroyed. It could have disintegrated or whatever. So they had to be copied, right? Yeah. Okay. So the thing is, is that that's true of what we have for the Bible. And we're going to look at this in more depth next week about the manuscripts that we have of the books of the Bible and of the Bible itself. All right, But we know about history, people, events, and everything because somebody eventually wrote it down. And then through a course of time, you know, it made it to our history books. I've got this quote here by a pastor by the name of David Platt. He says, We base our knowledge of world history on writings where we have a handful of manuscripts, sometimes a few hundred or less. But we have over 5,000 full or partial manuscripts of the Greek New Testament, and more manuscripts are found every year. 
none of which have ever resulted in a major revision, just a relatively few um, and extremely minor variations, making the Bible by far the most reliably attested writing in history. In other words, there is more, not just because people believe it, but there is more manuscript evidence for the books of the Bible than there is that Caesar even existed, much less what he accomplished. And anything else from history that far back. But yet people say, well, the Bible is a religious book. It's not a historical. It's the most historical book there is. It just happens to be religious and spiritual at the same time. Chris. The Jewish people back in the day. Yeah. Uh, it's a good point. I'll repeat it for the sake of the, of the recording. The Jewish people, because they believed that this was God's word, it wasn't just them writing down regular history or whatever, that they were tremendously meticulous when they were copying. Um, if they made a mistake, they would rip up the whole page and start all over again. Okay? I mean, a lot of things about the way they did it, and that's a great set. We're not going to dig deeply into that, but we're going to talk about that manuscript. But the thing is, is it still raises questions we're going to deal with next week. Perhaps you've heard, well, yeah, well, you got these 66 books, but what about the books that were left out? You know, I mean, there's the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter, and how come we only have the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Why weren't these others included? You know, and maybe there were books that were put in because it was only decided by human beings anyway. What if they got some of the wrong books in and they left some of the right books out? So even in light of the fact that the manuscript evidence is very reliable, how do we know that the Bible is based on the right manuscripts? So we're going to talk about that next week. And then the other thing is, as I said earlier, you have people that says, well, yeah, we don't have the original manuscript of Matthew. We don't have the original manuscript of Mark, Luke, John. So it was copied, and for a long time it was copied by hand because the printing press wasn't invented until the, what, 1500s, 1600s? I'm not up on that part of history, at least that detail. So it was copied by hand, and when you copy something by hand, you make mistakes, right? And they did work hard, as Chris said, and they really did to not make mistakes, but even trying hard as you can, perhaps there are, and all that kind of stuff. What about the possibility of mistakes creeping in over a couple thousand years? That's one of the big things that the um, Muslims say, is that we can't really trust the Bible that the Christians use because um, it has been corrupted so much through the years. Is that a valid claim? I would say no, and we're going to look at why next week, because that fits with the whole thing of are there errors in the Bible. All right? I'll just tell you this so you don't go home and you despair all week long. Are there? Okay. <laughs> Based on the manuscripts that we have, Bible scholars say that there is 99.5% sure of almost every single letter in the Bible. Okay? Where there are perhaps discrepancies between this manuscript and that equals to less than one half of a percent, and none of it affects anything of major significance. And we'll talk about more details about that next week. Yeah, Lynn. And that's the main reason. That's right. That's right. And that's one of the reasons why people put up such objections to say we can't trust the Bible because they don't want to trust God, or maybe honestly they don't believe in God. But you did bring up a really good question. If the Bible is, if, the, if, if they're that true about the accuracy of the manuscripts that we have, why is it that even in the Christian church, um, Bible scholars can disagree about details about theology and all that kind of stuff? Well, the thing is, is they may disagree about theology, which has to do with the interpretation of it, but they don't disagree about what's actually in the text. You see what I'm saying? In other words, they agree on what the Bible actually says, the words, but they may not agree totally on how we should interpret or apply those words. Because there's a number of scriptures that can be taken a couple different ways. 
So, and we're going to be dealing with some of those questions too. In fact, I mentioned last week that one of the questions we're going to deal with is, you know, should, can women be preachers, teachers, whatever? Okay, there are some Bible scholars and denominations that say no because of certain things that Paul said. But then there are others like ours that say yes, God used women in all different realms all through God's word. And we're going to dig into that topic, okay? There's no doubt about what was said about the words in the Bible, but how do we interpret that and how do we understand what was meant by those words? The words, they all agree on. But that's the topic for another time. So, anyway, uh, manuscript reliability. In other words, when God had the authors write it down, it was perfect. But we're going to study it again next week that what we have now are such accurate copies of that, even though it's been almost 2,000 years for some of them, that we can know that they're accurate, okay? All right, number four, historical accuracy. Historical accuracy. No archaeological finds have contradicted the Bible. In fact, many times throughout history, and still today, the Bible has been used to find archaeological sites. People would read something in the Bible, say, hey, let's go find that. You know, and so they would go and they would find it. Uh, this is in contrast, and I don't mean to be negative, but this is important. This is in contrast to something like the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is full of archaeological and historical inaccuracies. Okay? And there have been stories in the Book of Mormon, mainly has to do with the United States, and people would try to follow up and go, and there's absolutely no evidence that the story that they find in the Book of Mormon has any historical or archaeological. Um, basis to it. Places that supposedly these things happen in the United States and all that kind of stuff, and there's, there's no evidence. But just the opposite is true of the Bible. What's really interesting is that people try to nitpick and find things in the Bible and compare it to history, compare it to archaeology, and say, oh, that doesn't line up. One of them that uh, would, was often put out there was Jericho. You know, the Bible talks about how Jericho was defeated by Joshua. They had these big walls and they collapsed and all that kind of stuff. And they said, well, they've done archaeological digs in Jericho. They found no evidence of these big walls and that they collapsed and all that kind of stuff. And then they found out that that was a different site of Jericho because once it was destroyed, when they rebuilt it, they built it in a different place. And when they found out where the original Jericho was, there was that evidence. So sometimes there is evidence that's put forward saying, well, see, the Bible doesn't jive here. But sometimes it's because the lack of knowledge, all right? Uh, another one is the Bible talks about these group of people called the Hittites. And for a long time, archaeologists could find absolutely no evidence of the Hittites. They said, see, the Bible just made that up um, is some enemy that they had. And then, lo and behold, they went to this new site and they found evidence of the Hittites and it was inscribed and all that kind of stuff. You know, King David is um, the, one of the greatest heroes of the Jewish faith. And for a long time, they could find, abs other than the Bible, which, as I said, is the, actually the most reliable historical document we have, but other than the Bible, they could find nothing that talked about King David. And they said, oh, well, he was just a mythological character that grew up among the Jewish people, is their ultimate king and all that kind of stuff, but he wasn't a real person. And then they found an engraving <laughs> in a stone thing in an archaeological dig with King David's name. Same thing for Pontius Pilate on the Roman side. They found an engraving of his name in Latin. But before that, they couldn't find anything about Pontius Pilate. You see, so much history has taken place that, you know, not all of it was written down or engraved in stone or whatever. 
But as I said, there have been none that have contradicted what God's word has said. Okay, we will deal some more with that a little bit um, next week also. But the places and people and the events um, can be correspondent, can be confirmed by archaeology and history to at least some degree that you can about things that happened forever ago and there may or may not be uh, evidence that's still viable today. Yes? No. Between the Old and New Testament. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are, I can't remember exactly how many, 13, 14 books. They're called the Apocrypha that... Um, some Jewish people accept them as being part of the Old Testament. Some do not. Um, the Roman Catholic Church accepts it as being part of the New Testament, um, although for the most part the Protestant Church doesn't. And um, the King James Bible actually originally had it, as you said, but it does not any longer. Those were books that were disputed. And that gets back to the question we talked about earlier. How do we know we have the right books in the Bible, that these really are the ones that God wanted there? And we're going to dig more deeply into that next week. So that is, that's an important question. Debbie? Yeah. And the other thing, too, over in the Middle East, again, the sand and the dry climate and stuff, fortunately, that preserves a lot of things. But you have one society that has, and then um, another society comes along, and it gets buried. And it, I mean, there's places in the Middle East where they can dig down 30, 40, 50 feet and get down to where that's where society lived at that time in history. And it just got built up more and more and more. Um, I guarantee there's a whole bunch of stuff over there that people will never find. <laughs> You know, but would probably give great um, support to a lot of the things that we know about in the Bible. So, all right, number five on here, honesty about failure. Honesty about failure. Now, to be honest with you, this is not necessarily a proof, okay, um, that the Bible is God's word, but it really adds to its credibility, okay? So, most of you probably have done web searches, gone places on websites, and most websites for individuals or organizations where it has a little button that goes to a page that says something like about us or a biography or a history or whatever. What kind of information do you find on those web pages about us, whether it's a company or an individual or whatever? What kind of information? The good stuff. Have you ever come across one where it lists every failure they ever had, the character flaws they had, and all that kind of stuff? Why is that? We always want to put our best foot forward, right? That's human nature. But do we see that in the Bible? Biblical authors are brutally honest, and sometimes about themselves. Yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly. About themselves and about their heroes. Okay, that just adds more credibility. Again, it's not necessarily a proof, but it just adds even more credibility, okay, to the reliability of the Bible. Um, the sixth one is survived persecution and criticisms. The Bible has survived persecution and criticisms. We've got three bullet points there. The first one is attempts to destroy the Bible's believers. All right, the people, first of all, the people who actually were used by God to write God's word, they believed that it was God's word, that God was using them to write it. And they were willing to die rather than deny it's God's inspired status. But the same thing is true for believers throughout history who are willing to die rather than deny that God inspired the Bible. Now, people will die for lies all the time, but they don't die for things they know are lies. 
Do you agree with that? Yeah. People die for things that aren't true, but they think it is. But if you know something's a lie and somebody's going to kill you, especially in a painful way, unless you say that's not true. If you know it's not true, it's like, you're right, it's not. Don't kill me. All right. But there have been hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of people that have been willing to die to stake their life on the fact that this is God's word. They believe it with all their heart. Okay. Um, And that's one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection, specifically, not just God's word, is the fact that the disciples, every single one of them, were willing to die, most of them in very painful ways, than to say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. I actually, you know, they say, I actually saw him. Yeah, he did rise from the dead. And they were willing to die. Okay? So attempts to destroy the Bible's believers. The second bullet point is attempts to destroy the Bible's credibility. Okay? So many people have tried to destroy the credibility of the Bible. That's one of the things we're talking about here. We're going to talk about next week. You know, all these errors, all that kind of stuff. But yet, after thousands of years of people trying to destroy the Bible's credibility, it still is here. Okay? And there's still plenty of defense for it. People have tried to destroy the credibility of the resurrection of Jesus. As I said, one of the greatest um, supports for that is the willingness of those who were there to die believing he really did raised from the dead. Okay, that's a whole different topic. Um, But what's really interesting, there are so many testimonies of people who deliberately set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ and became believers in the process. One of the greatest contemporary ones that's known is Lee Strobel, who's a pastor, and he was an investigative journalist for the Chicago, I don't know if it's the Tribune, but a paper in Chicago. And his, him and his wife were atheists, and she became a Christian, and he made it his biggest goal in life was to prove she was wrong, <laughs> you know. Uh, and um, in that process, he became a Christian, and he's written a bunch of books. And the one that specifically details his journey is called The Case for Christ. They made a movie. How many of you have seen the movie The Case for Christ? A bunch. If you haven't seen it, we just watched it the other night with Bethany. Um, you need to watch that. It is powerful. It's encouraging. It's a great story, but it will also bolster your faith. Okay? And it's true. All right? And then the third one is attempts to eliminate the Bible physically. There have been efforts throughout the years. Of course, nowadays it would be impossible because the Bible is just not just a printed book, even though the printed copies of the Bible are so... There's so many of There's no way somebody could actually eliminate all printed copies of the Bible. And because it's available digitally, there's absolutely no way somebody could wipe it out. But there were times in history, there were people that were doing their best to try to eliminate the actual abilities for somebody to own a Bible. And I love this quote. There's a, there's a famous, just a, there's a famous philosopher, his name is Voltaire. Okay? Over 250 years ago, Voltaire held, he was an atheist too, he held a copy of the Bible in his hand. He says, in a hundred years, this Bible will be forgotten and eliminated. Obviously it hasn't, but here's what's interesting. A hundred years later, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and used it as a headquarters for distributing Bibles. <laughs> so I love that story. What were you going to say, Carlton? Google Oh, okay. People searches for the Bible? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the internet gets a lot of revenue from people searching out the Bible. Yeah. Chris? Yeah. Yeah. Number seven, the last one here before we wrap it all up. Um, another reason we believe we can trust the Bible is power for good in this world. The power for good in the world. Okay. I'm going to cover the last of this pretty quick because we're getting close to the end. 
Where the Bible is read, preached, and obeyed, it transforms lives and nations and is a force for good. You probably know, but if you don't, you'll learn now. Did you know that most hospitals and other humanitarian organizations were founded by believers? Up until recent history, you know. Um, up until recent history, too. And I say recent in the last, what, 100 years, whatever. Most universities and, and educational institutions were founded by believers because there's this thirst for knowledge, okay? If you look at the history of the United States and its influence around the world... Most of the good parts of the history of the United States and the good parts, because it's not all been good, of its influence around the world can be based on Christian organizations, Christian belief, or at least truths that are based on what the Bible says is good and right and moral. But the opposite is true, too. On your note sheet there, the second bullet point, where it's neglected, talking about the Bible, it brings sin, suffering, and sorrow. And the same thing about the USA. The things that are wrong about our nation, the influence it's had in the world that has not been good, if you were to really look at it, it's probably because of things that were done or said that were contrary to the principles of God's word. Okay, And that's true in personal lives, too. Now, somebody would make the objection, but you know what? There's been so much bad and even evil that's been done in the name of God or Jesus or the church. Is that true? Yeah. So how do we defend that? Well, you say, John? Yeah, so how, if somebody says, you know, there's been a lot done in here. Look at the Crusades. Look at the Inquisition. Look at Hitler. Hitler would quote the Bible, you know? Um, slavery in the United States was supported by the slave owners by quoting the Bible. And that's going to be one of the questions we're going to deal with. Why does the Bible, you know, it talks about slavery as it's just there, but, you know, and that's going to be a good question to talk about. So how do we deal with that if somebody says, well, you know, there's been a lot of bad and evil done in the name of God, Jesus, and the church. How do you, how do you defend against that? You just ignore it? Yeah. Okay. But there is a very good defense. And that is, even though it was done in the name of God or in the name of Jesus or in, the, in, you know, in, in the name of the church, it was done totally and completely contradicting everything God said about it. You see what I'm saying? And it was the Crusades when they went out and they slaughtered people and all that kind of stuff in the name of the church. If they looked at what the Bible said, they wouldn't have done that if they were obeying the Bible. So in other words, it was done in that name, but it was not done on the authority of God because God did not tell them to do it. It was against God's principles. It was against God's laws, against God's ethics. Yeah, Lynn. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, defend everything with the word of God. But for people that don't believe the word of God, that's why we talk about what we're talking about tonight. So hopefully we can convince them that there's a good, valid reason to believe that this is the word of God. Okay, so to wrap this all up, the conclusion, the consequences of trusting the Bible. Number one, if the Bible is truly God's word, we should take time to get to know it. This is the practical part. You know, probably most everybody in this room would say, I agree with all the stuff you're talking about. I believe the Bible is God's word. But are we taking the time to get to know it? If it really is God's word... Why don't we spend time with it if we don't? If we don't. It should be the most important book we read. We, we, we take it for granted. The second one is if the Bible is truly God's word, we should base our beliefs on its truth. We should base our beliefs on its truth. Do we do that? I can't tell you how many people, times I've heard people say, well, I know the Bible says this. I know what the Bible says, but... 
If it's really God's word, there is no but. As far as trying to say that something different is okay or in what I believe or whatever, you know? It's sort of like somebody who knows absolutely nothing about cars claiming to know more about them than a mechanic. It doesn't make any sense. All right? And the third and last one is if the Bible is truly God's word, we should base our lifestyle on its truth. If we really believe it's God's word, is it what shapes the way we live? And everything about that, our character, our attitudes, our actions, our motivations, our words. James 1, 22 to 25 is a passage I'm sure very familiar to most of you. Where God says through James, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the Bible we have, it's God's word. It's also a manual. It's an instruction book. I, I like what one person said. I have no idea who said it first, that the B-I-B-L-E stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. Okay, But not only that, it's a love letter. It's God's intimate communication with us. So we need to spend time with God's word. We need to listen to it. We need to read it, study it. Apply it, okay, and allow it to be the foundation of what we believe and how we live. Allow it to change us. Yeah. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had to look at your word and its authority. And Lord, I thank you that you could have said, and you did say, this is my word, just accept it and live by it. That that isn't all you did, Lord God. You did it in such a way that there's tremendous support that shows that it's your word. Support, Lord God, that bolsters our faith, that gives us a confidence, that gives us a strong rock to stand upon. Lord, we believe it's your word because you say so. But also, Lord, we believe it because you've put so much evidence in this world and in the word itself that it truly is your word. And God, I just take the time to pray for those people that are in our lives or maybe ones we'll come across, Lord Jesus, who don't believe that, that you would help us to use what we've learned tonight, and maybe we already knew it, and other things that we'll learn, to be able to share with them truths, Lord God, that might get them thinking otherwise. It might be the first step for them to take a second look at your word, and even more importantly, take a second look at their relationship with you. I pray that would be true of all the things we discuss, Lord God, all the time when we study your word, but especially in this series that we would learn things that we can use to help others come to know you and to deal with their objections and the, 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 the obstacles that they see in their lives. Father, we thank you and we praise you for all these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 